Okay, good morning again. If you would, please turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Acts of the Apostles. Chapter 23, we will be working our way through Acts 23, verses 12 through 35. Let's pray. Father, you declared through Isaiah that as the rain falls upon the earth and causes vegetation, seed to the sower, and bread for food, so shall your word, which goes forth from your mouth, bring forth that which it calls for. Oh, may the word of life Bring life to those who are in Christ and may it bring life to those who are dead that they see you are good. Be with us over these next 35 minutes by the presence of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Here's reality. Every single one of us, we wake up every day and we move. We make choices. We think. Our wills, our human wills, are making decisions all the time. Hopefully we grow in wisdom, make wise choices, and we... Move on when we make bad choices. We, as human beings, are responsible for every action, for every choice in our lives. And yet, at the same time, God is in sovereign control. Over all of that. Now, this morning, as we work our way through this passage in the book of Acts, there's no theology laid out in it. There's no exposition of scripture being given in it. There's no gospel preaching in it. No doctrines are laid out. No commands are given in this narrative, in this story of what happened here in Paul's life. What we have before us is an illustration of God's sovereign providence. Now, before we work our way through this passage this morning, we must understand that it comes in the context of the previous verse that we ended with last week. Verse 11, Acts 23. Paul's in jail there in Jerusalem, and we read, The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. 
In other words, Jesus tells him, I'm going to get you to Rome, Paul, meaning you won't be killed here in Jerusalem. But as we read the text, I want you to notice that Paul does not say to his nephew who found out a plot to kill him, he doesn't say to him, oh, don't worry about that, dear nephew, because I believe in God's sovereignty. And Jesus gave me a promise last night that I will not be killed here. i got to make it to Rome, 1,500 miles away. So let's just go back to sleep. This information is unhelpful. If your understanding of God's sovereignty over the affairs of the world and over the affairs of your life leads you to that kind of apathy, then your understanding of God's sovereignty is wrong. Your theology of the implications of God's utter and radical sovereignty and control over everything is skewed. What we see this morning for your life, as well as for Paul's life, is that God's sovereignty over all things is in no way a contradiction to our human willing. To our human thinking, pondering, using logic, taking action. It's not one or the other. Let me pose the question, which I probably, I don't know, you would think, pose that after we work the way through the text. I'm going to pose it before. Did Paul avoid getting killed by these assassins because God willed for Paul not to get killed? Or was it because the plot was found out by his nephew? And the Roman Tribune saved Paul's life. The answer to those two options is yes. Yes. But it's important you don't get the cart before the horse and turn it around. The horse pulls the cart and not the other way. In other words... God's sovereign protection of Paul in this passage, it did not happen because the plot was found out by his nephew. And the tribune safely got Paul out of Jerusalem. No, all of those things to save Paul's life happened because God sovereignly willed it. It was his providence working and this is huge for every one of our lives in here and particularly if you are a believer if you are in Christ yes Paul got a promise from Jesus in that cell concerning some temporal issues we have many promises from the same Lord Jesus And I want you to hear a promise from the Lord who is sovereign to make it happen. Absolutely. 
Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Every person that the Father gives to me. Is that you? Have you come to him? Then that's you. Every person that the Father gives to me, they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And that's why the Apostle Paul says later in Philippians chapter 1, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you Christians, in you believers, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, his second coming. Each and every Christian's road and journey down here through this life is different than the other person's. We are all unique. We all have differing paths that we don't know until they start to unfold. But we do know this to each and every one of us believers. Jesus says, as he did to Paul, take courage. Take courage. I have overcome the world. I will get you from where you are right now to there. And what that means is we as believers, the Christian life is this. We take that courage and we move. We act. We acquire wisdom. We fill ourselves with the truth of the gospel and of God's holy word, renewing our minds. And we go on choosing, willing, Repenting, obeying in childlike trust. And at the end of our journeys, at the resurrection one day, we will look at any good that was worked through us along with the bad. And we will look at all of that good. And we will then realize all of that was 100% owing to God's sovereign. Providence, and we will be so happy to give to him all the glory. All of it. We will not then, as we are now, as still sinners, be polluted in our thinking. Give me a little credit. We won't. So as we now go into our passage, Acts chapter 23. Know this about your own life, believer. As Isaiah says, you are carved into the palm of his hand. He will get you from where you are to that day. Let's begin with verse 12. Acts 23. When it was day... The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed Paul 
There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priest and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath not to taste food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, I mean, first thing that hits my mind is, isn't enough enough <laughs> for Paul and all that he's already gone through as we've seen the last few weeks? And really, just read church history. Read the last 2,000 years. So many brothers and sisters have suffered grievously because of the gospel. Thousands upon ten thousands were put to death because of their faith. And over this last week, many Christians have been killed because they are Christians. It's getting worse in China. But here's the deal. The Lord Jesus, God the Father, the one true creator of the universe does not love Paul more than he loves any of those whom the Father has given to him. He doesn't. Yeah, but, yes, Paul, like, like Moses, had a particular importance that you don't have and I don't have as a revelatory spokesperson, as a servant of of the Lord. And if Paul is not exempt from such trials and pain and suffering under the sovereign hand of God, then none of his people are exempt. So what we see here now is if these unbelievers, these unbelieving Jews who were so threatened by the Theology of the gospel and of Paul himself. If they couldn't get rid of Paul legally like they tried, then they would have to conspire a plot to assassinate him. And so the plot is set and we look at verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister, and now we know, the only way we know that Paul had a sister at least, and a nephew, the, the son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and he was given permission to go in and visit Paul in the cell and he told Paul about it. So again, notice Paul does not say to his nephew, don't worry about it. God is sovereign. Not only that, I know the future, at least on this issue, I can't be killed here. Thanks for the information anyway. That's not what he did. Think about it. Why did the great Apostle Paul, the theologian of God's sovereignty over all things, over every flap of a fly's wing, and over your salvation, why did this man not respond that way? The answer is simple. Because he knew that would be foolish and sinful. 
when Paul sees that God's providence gives him an opportunity to avoid pain and death without denying him, he takes that. Paul thinks that it's sinfully presumptuous to think that since God is sovereign, I don't need to take any responsibility in order to act wisely with the information that is given to me. Because Paul knows, as all of us are, we are called as Christians to live our lives by faith. We are called to walk in the Spirit. We're called to bear the fruit of the Spirit and to not live according to our sinful natures, which would include the sin of misinterpreting the implications of God's sovereignty over our lives. We don't know the details of how Paul's nephew found out the plot, doesn't say, but we do know why he found out the plot. Because Jesus promised Paul, I'm going to get you to Rome. In other words, it was the Lord's sovereign providence that his nephew found out the plot. And read on verse 17. And so Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is this that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor to drink until they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. So the tribune, this is his responsibility. He's stationed in Rome. I mean Rome. Jerusalem. He doesn't want any problems on his hands with with the Jews. He knows Paul's a Roman citizen and he deserves, therefore, like most people in the Roman Empire don't because they're not citizens, he deserves the court system. Not only that, he doesn't want to see this very famous guy murdered under his watch here in Jerusalem. So the tribune devises a plan. Then he called two of the centurions, they're each over a hundred soldiers, and he said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea, 50 miles away, and leave at the third hour of the night, 9 p.m., 
also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, of the Bible, the law of Moses. But he was charged with nothing, deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed or revealed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So Claudius, he sneaks Paul out in the middle of the night. He sends 470 soldiers to get him out of Jerusalem, away from Jerusalem, and the legal process of the Roman system on behalf of Paul, who is a citizen, is now officially begun. Read on. So the soldiers, according to the instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, which is a Roman military outpost. I don't know if it's 10, 15 miles away. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with Paul the rest of the way. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that Paul was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. <coughs> so Paul... Safely out of Jerusalem. He's protected from the assassination plot. All by God's providence. Now, I've used that word a number of times in this sermon. God's providence refers to the means by which he carries out his sovereign rule. They're not exactly the same. The word providence is not in the Bible. It's a theological term to describe a reality that's all through the Bible. Like the word trinity, which is the reality that you get if you read the Bible carefully. But the word is a theological word. Trinity, God, one essence, three persons. Providence, which you see throughout the Bible. God's sovereignty working through creation as the means of bringing out his will and his purpose. So, for instance, first, the systematic theologian, Wayne Grudem, and defines providence this way in his systematic theology. Quote, 
we may define God's providence as follows. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, he cooperates with created things in every action directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And three, he directs them in order to fulfill his purposes. And so the first aspect that Gruden mentions there is what we see in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. Meaning, without that ongoing, constant activity, all created things would cease to exist. The second Quote Grudem again. God cooperates with created things in every action directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. This includes God causing things to happen that we would just consider as merely natural occurrences. We can define them in scientific textbooks of how that happens. Like the Bible says, the God causes the rain and the snow to fall upon the earth. God causes or feeds the wild beast. Where Jesus says, God, he feeds the birds of the air. No, we can study birds of the air and we can see all the natural processes by which they eat Yes, but there's no contradiction there. God is sovereignly providential over that. And it means that God is also governing human affairs. Like Paul's nephew finding out about the assassination plot. Like Claudius making the decisions that he made to get Paul safely out of Jerusalem to Caesarea. Or as Paul himself declared when he was in Athens, Greece, back in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, that God determines the existence, the times, and the boundaries of all nations. God governs every aspect of our lives. And for the third aspect, why? In order to bring about his sovereign, preordained goals, purposes. Or, or another way that Grudem says it is this way. God has a purpose in all that he does in the world, and he providentially governs or directs all things in order that they accomplish his purpose. Now, I could read for 30, 40 minutes, text after text in Scripture. I'm just going to read you a couple. 
In Daniel 4, verse 35, God has put it into the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar after his discipline of him. And I would say after the salvation of Nebuchadnezzar, he says truly, He, God, the God of the Jews, Yahweh, He does according to His will among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, Why have you done this? No. Or we read in the very first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost through Peter's mouth, back in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter declares, This Jesus, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You are responsible, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus, who through your sin through your bribery of Judas, through your railroading this religious court in the middle of the night, the Sanhedrin, to condemn him, and to sun up to deliver him over to the tower of Antonia, to Pontius Pilate, who has him bloodily whipped, and through his Sinful cowardice, the politician caves and has him delivered over to his Roman soldiers to have him tortured slowly to death on a Roman cross for which all human willing decision-making and choosing, they are accountable for and responsible for. They didn't do anything against their will. They did exactly their will. He says, he was delivered up to all of that by God's definitive, definite, foreordained, foreknowledged plan. And dear believer, just one more. This is about you. You who are in Christ, hear how precious this doctrine is. Ephesians 1.11 In Him, in Christ, we we who have come alive to him, we have obtained an inheritance. How come? Because we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all 
things according to the counsel, not of anybody outside of himself, but according to the counsel of his will. Your Savior is not only loving and caring. That would be one thing. But this is what changes all of that for you. He is also in sovereign control. And he says to you daily, take courage. I have ordained your beginning and your end and everything in between. That is what the Lord Jesus assures us of through his apostle Paul. Hear the word of the Lord. If you want, I would encourage you, imagine this man who is in jail in Jerusalem, has already been bloodied, beaten, and bruised. Here he will be delivered from death at this time, hear him preach about this gospel and his Lord and Savior who appeared to him in that jail cell. He says to all believers everywhere at all times from Romans 8, Christian, think about it. God the Holy Spirit himself he bears witness. This is an experience. With our spirit. That we are children of God. And think about it. If, if children, then we're heirs. We're inheritors. We're heirs of God. And we are fellow or joint heirs with his eternal son, Christ. Provided we suffer. With him, in order that we may also in that future, in the resurrection, be glorified with him. Where Paul says, Where do you think I get this? He says, This is where I get it. For I consider that the sufferings, picture him in that jail, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth with the glory that is in the future to be revealed to us. He says, dear believer, if God is for us, who could be against us? Don't you get it? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up on the cross for us all and raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand to govern the universe. How will God not also through Jesus graciously give to us all things? And so, Christian who is still so broken and undone and sinful but understands you've been justified.
he says, who is there to bring a charge against God's elect? Who? But you don't get it. I sinned this week. You get the gospel, don't you? You don't stand upon your own righteousness. You stand upon the righteousness of another. Only one. The Lord Jesus Christ who lived in perfect, sinless obedience throughout his humanity on earth. That is attributed to you. That's what Paul has argued in this same letter up to that point. That's why he says... Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is right now interceding for us. And so Paul says to us, I ask you, no matter what your circumstances be at this moment or that unforeseen pain and suffering that's ahead of you, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, Famine, nakedness or danger. How about a sword run through your belly? His answer is no. Why are you so sure of that, Paul? He tells us. For I am sure that neither death, any greater enemy down here than that, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can be assured of it because he is in absolute control and providentially is working and will continue to work in your life. It's guaranteed what we just read. There are no ifs and ands and buts about it. Jesus, our sovereign king, is in sovereign control. His promises are sure and steadfast. Now that we know that, we act. We fill our minds with truth, which affects how we choose. And one thing, our sovereign Lord wants what he desires, what he tells us who are in him is that he so desires for you to believe this, for you to believe 
his love and care for you. He wants you to experience him, draw close to him, be filled with the Holy Spirit, with his presence and his comfort in your daily life. Jesus always has open arms. We know this because he went to the cross to purchase us who believe. In his open arms, he instituted before his death on that night when he took the bread and he took the cup, he said, this is my body broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. His open arms are beckoning his people, his gatherings everywhere to do this again and again and again. And so as we enter in to communion, focusing again on the cross, which purchased our guarantee of our sovereign king who will get us there. We will be singing. We'll be coming around with the elements which you'll take and hold if you are a baptized believer and we will pray over them together. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. This is the center joy of our lives. It is the glorious reality upon which we who believe stand. Continue to work upon us. Continue to shine the light upon unconfessed sin in us. Knowing that you are faithful and righteous through your son Jesus Christ to forgive us of all sins. and To cleanse us of it all. To the glory of your name.